So we're back on it, picking up with some Kubrick films. And the first one here that you know I've wanted to see for a long time, and I feel like having watched Paths of Glory now, I feel like I can see where a lot of other war films over the years, you, you can tell like some things either were lifted or borrowed from a film like this. I mean, specifically this film. But it's interesting to see this film about World War I that was released in 1957. You know, if we look at when this film takes place, it's 1916, if I remember right. So that's about 40 years difference, right? And it made me think, it's like, if this film came out in the late 50s, like what was the, what was the, the landscape of the time? Was it too soon to make a film about World War II? Or was it a thing where maybe some stories weren't defined enough or clear enough to talk about what had just happened, you know, 12 years, 15 years earlier. I don't know. I mean, it's curious to think about that because, you know, you look at this film now, I mean, 1957 takes place in 1916. So you have to think, all right, that's a 40 year difference. And if you were to make a film today that was 40 years earlier, that's 1983, basically. And that's not far off track from some things that you see today. You see filmmakers telling stories about things that happened in the 80s. And I think it's just that generational thing where you've got people who grew up during a specific time, their childhood, their young life experiences were formed by things that were happening in the world. When they do get older and get in a position to tell stories or make uh, films or, or, or just create their art and reflect back on those ideas or uh, back on those times, really, or those events, that's when you see them kind of come to life. And so, you know, if you look at it that way, it makes sense that this is the type of film that would have been told in the 1950s versus a film about World War II. Now, of course, you do see World War II films come out over the years. I mean, even up until this last year or this year. So, but when is too soon, right? I don't know. Um, I, I just think it's it's interesting that this is the film that one kind of set a, a certain bar for films about war because not only the way it's shot and produced and, and crafted, but the type of story it tells. And so, you know, it, look, here's kind of the basic idea. You've got Kirk Douglas playing this. Um, uh, he's a leader of his men and he's essentially been given orders to take on this mission to uh, take and hold uh, an area called the Ant Hill. He knows it's really just, it's going to be impossible. It's kind of a suicide mission, but these are the orders. And even the men don't really seem up to it. it it's kind of a, it's at a point in the war where things are pretty weary, right? So everybody involved, except for leadership, you know, the generals, the, the people calling the shots, they're the ones that believe that they're on the right track and these are the right things to do. But it's almost like there's there's very little value for the lives of the men that are going to be, you know, running into uh, running into the front lines. 
And that's where I think this film tries to really give us that perspective of I, there's a kind of a callousness to it. There's a, just a real cavalier attitude towards you know what these people's lives are worth. And even if it's more about like gaining some recognition or status over saving men's lives, you know? And so you've got a lot of this knowing that uh, this is not going to end well for everybody. And even the idea of, you know, men are going to be lost. It's, it's spelled out very clearly, even to friendly fire, you know, the idea of firing on your own men to kill the enemies, but most likely going to kill your own men also. It's a really hard uh, choice to make. And so, you know, and the other thing I think about with like, why would World War I be more interesting of a story to tell? I, you know, I think this is the height of the brutal type of trench warfare that really wasn't seen again after this, not in this way. So it ends up giving you a sense of how impossible this mission is going to be. And, you know, if I even think back to uh, talking about All Quiet on the Western Front, I think that was earlier this year. It was in a previous episode. And this reminds me a lot of that film. I mean, it's similar storyline in a sense. You've got soldiers that are on the front lines and they're really not interested in being there. And yet they're being given orders that are most certainly going to lead to their death. And how do they somehow find a way to get through that? And here it's a little bit different because we do end up having, uh, it, it does take us out of the battle, the, the arena of everything. Uh, you've got some of the men who are basically court-martialed because of uh, supposed cowardice, because they ran from the fight. Versus they were maybe the only ones that survived. And you see the way the, the trial, the, the uh, sentencing of them is, is totally unfair. And it's really built around making an example of them versus, you know, doing the right thing. You're making the right call over what they did. And, you know, if you think about it that way, like this film really does take a look at the futility of it all, which is a weird, it's kind of a cynical take, I guess, but you know, the futility of war, the futility of fighting against the, the chain of command, uh, just the futility of the elements, you know, when you've got these battles, the, these situations where they're just overcome by what's out there in the world. And so it's an interesting look at that. I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily have thought that this was that deep of a film. I, I, I knew it was a war film. I knew it was basically an anti-war film. But uh, I'm, I'm really struck by the nuance of some of, the, some of the characters, some of the situations, because I feel like even in the 1950s, like this isn't the way you would talk about war. You know, it, it seemed like, you know, you have to be patriotic. You have to be uh, jingoistic. And this film, I mean, it clearly goes in the other direction 
it's not doing it just to be like subversive or, or controversial. It's really making valid points about why are we doing this? And why are we treating fellow men, fellow soldiers this way? So it's a really interesting watch. Um, you can see here that this is where I, I feel like the signature, like Kubrick really has started to establish some of his signature moves, whether it was like some of the long tracking shots or it, whether it was having characters, having a scene play out in these almost kind of cavernous uh, settings and spaces. You know, when you, you they're in this court martial hall, they're in some of these indoor settings where, you know, it looks like they are tiny compared to everything around them. And it's it's more of a composition thing, kind of a framing thing, but it does start to pop up after this in all of his other films in, in some ways. And uh, actually, you know what? I, the other film I saw, uh, Killer's Kiss, that's where I think it probably really because that was two years earlier, I think 1955. That's another film that does that in some minor ways, but in key moments, you know, it gives us a look at these characters against the backdrop of New York and it's hazy and it's gray and it feels kind of desolate. And yet these characters are trying to move through their story. And so Paths of Glory it's a very interesting look at war and the cost of war, the cost of loyalty. Um, Killer's Kiss is a little bit different uh, in a sense because it is a, uh, it's not as linear or or as structured, and that's why I feel like well, this is one of his earlier films, so maybe this was kind of finding his own voice, his own vision for the types of stories he wants to tell, but also how he tells them. Killer's Kiss is a little more, uh, it's all done with flashbacks and voiceover. And, you know, it's moody, it's set in New York, and it's got this real kind of gritty, grimy feel to it. And yet, um, the, the story, I just feel like, isn't quite there yet. You know, it's got a couple of interesting, uh, I guess, revelations or moments for the characters as they're going through. You know, it's it's about this boxer. Uh, was his name? Davy Gordon, I think is his name. And he spots this woman across the way in his building, I guess, neighbor, if you want to call it that. And they don't know each other, but they end up forming a relationship. But she's actually involved with some other guy that likes to teach dance classes or whatever. Turns out he's maybe connected with some bad people. He gets jealous. Boxer gets in the middle of it. You know, it turns into a whole little love triangle sort of thing. And, you know, she gets caught in the middle. Not sure, like, who she's really into. He's the one that's kind of like, I got to get out of here. I'm, I'm done with this life. And it, it's, it's, it's an interesting look at a time period. I don't really know that the characters or even the story is all that compelling at this point. Uh, I mean, the other thing is it's only an hour long. So, you know, you could maybe say it's not quite a feature, even though it, it kind of plays out that way. Um. So I think it's more of an of a look at 
an artist, a filmmaker finding his lane, you know? And once you move into, like after Paths of Glory, you get to Spartacus, you get to Lolita, you, you start to see like, okay, well, I don't know, even Spartacus is not really, truly a Kubrick film, right? I think we all know that. Like he kind of inherited that film and it wasn't entirely under his control in terms of the story and in terms of the look of the film. He, I think, famously or infamously had a lot of conflicts with the the cast and the crew. And yet, maybe it was a good exercise in knowing where the limits are and knowing, okay, well, I don't want to do that again. I want to go in the other direction. I want to make a film that is exactly what I want and takes as long as it needs to get done. And it's going to be the vision and I'm going to have control over everything about it up until the day people see it. All right, hey, power moves, bro. That's the way to do it. And so, I, you know, Spartacus is one that I was going to watch here, but I kind of feel like I, I saw it a long time ago. And I just feel like, well, is it really Kubrick? Like through and through, you know? So I, I've kind of passed on that, but I did want to watch these older films because I'd never seen these before. The other one, look, the other one I wanted to watch that I, I, I think I've tried it. I've tried to watch it a couple of times over the years. Never really got very far into it. Barry Lyndon. I mean, that's a film that, on its face, I have no interest in. I just have no interest in that time period, in those types of settings, those characters. I just, nothing about it appeals to me, right? And yet, look, I mean, I'm talking about a filmmaker who's told these far-reaching stories about very complicated and, and sophisticated ideas. And so then it's just a matter of, okay, well, but why did he tell this story? Like, what is it about this? And so that, yeah, I came around to like, okay, there must be something in this film, something that's being told in this story that it's going to connect with me somewhere. I just never gave it the time, never had the patience for it. So I did finally sit down to watch it. And yeah, I got to say, um, it was very interesting. And maybe, you know, in the past when I've tried to watch it, I was at a different point in life. Maybe I was too young, too, uh, uh, my expectations were somewhere else. Here, I went into it totally open and just wanted to see what this was about. And, I mean, it also does take a little bit of a, I guess, a nonlinear approach. You know, it's told in basically two parts. And it's about this man, Redmond Barry, who let's, I think there's like, this takes place in the 1700s, something like that. And he essentially takes over or he becomes Barry Lyndon throughout the course of the film. And then we're told how that all happened, how that all played out, you know, whether it was him joining the uh, British army during the seven year war and then being taken in by the Prussian army at one point, and then going to work kind of as a spy, as a, you know, he's kind of moving into society, right? It's just interesting. It's a, it's a strange look at 
that time period, that part of the world, these adventures in military and battles in this kind of high society, this class structure, his relationships with different people. I, I mean, it really is kind of a fleshed out character piece. And, and it gives us a, a good perspective of like how he kind of cheated and shortcut his way into this wealth and status and this lifestyle. And just through his own nature seemed to still kind of shoot himself in the foot at every turn. And it all ends up catching up to him. You know, after the first part of the film, we kind of see him coming up and making a name for himself and doing certain things to get in right with certain people and all that. When we get to the second part, you know, that's when he kind of, he hits up rich wifey and becomes a Lord. He has a stepson. He has his own son with his wife and all those things, uh, because just the person he is, the nature of the man that he is, who is not quite uh, principled enough to, to, I guess, always do the right thing or always make the right choice. He still kind of looks out for number one first. And all that starts to backfire on him over time. You know, his, his uh, exploration with love, with relationships with friendships loyalty i mean even when we get to moments of loss and and you know what's weird is the film has it plays on it more than a few times these kind of just strange twists of fate where we think things are going to go one way and then they end up going the other way and once we see the upside to that of like oh okay I get it now. We're going this way. Then things swing back the other way. And it's just a strange kind of fortune, misfortune balance that happens throughout the film. And it's interesting to watch as a viewer because you're kind of being tugged in different directions over what you, th what you think you want to happen and what is about to happen. You know, the best example is at the end of the film, which, uh, look, this film is 47 years old. I'm just going to tell you. Barry Lyndon and his stepson, they're, they kind of, things between them reach ahead where they face off in a duel, right? A, a duel of pistols. And the way it plays out, it's so much like, it, for me, it was like, okay, well, I don't want this to happen. And then it looks like this is going to happen where Barry Lyndon's about to get killed. Well, a gun malfunctions and Barry Lyndon has the upper hand. And it's like, but do I want to see him kill his stepson? I, I don't want him to die, but do I want him to see him com commit murder like this? Well, he decides to have mercy, take the high road. He fires his gun into the floor, into the ground. And now the stepson has another turn now. And he takes his shot. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. I didn't want it to go that way either. And so it's a strange, like it, it's kind of, it's a, it's a strange game that the movie plays in some ways. And that happens a couple of other times where you think things are going to go a certain way and they don't, they go a different way. And I just think that's something that I had no idea was in this film. 
But if you look at the entirety of it and this character that Ryan O'Neill really hones in on from being a young man to being older, you know, he plays the age. I don't want to say he, he doesn't age in the film, but you don't see other than physically, you don't see a change in the character so much. I don't feel like, I feel like he is pretty much the same person throughout for good and bad. And it just reminds me of the idea that, you know, I think some people there, some people are just born in the wrong time. Cause I feel like a person like Redmond Barry slash Barry Lyndon would have made his way through the world differently had he been born today. And yet in this period in time, things, some things work for him, some things don't. And I, I don't know, maybe that was the idea of setting this film then. You know, I, I don't know that this film had to have been set in this period of time other than to show the, the limitations, the structures of society and how, how tricky it can be for someone to navigate that and still find their way to the top somehow. So it's an interesting look at that. I mean, otherwise, like technically, visually, the film is amazing. It does have, I mean, there are shots in the film that look like classical paintings. The way they're composed, the way they're lit. Uh, there's so much of it that just is beautiful. And yet, I don't feel like that's even the strength of the film in a weird way. Like you really have to watch it and understand these characters and what they're going through. So, you know, all of these are great films, are great examples of seeing a, a, a filmmaker kind of find his footing. And, and Barry Lyndon, of course, was later in Kubrick's career, but there I feel like you see in someone take a bold chance of like, okay, I did these two science fiction films early about the future, like Clockwork Orange 2001, right, and the years before this. Well, here, I'm going to make a totally left turn and go backwards, go to the 1700s and tell the story about, you know, war and high society and just a totally different game. And so, you know, if you look at it in that context, that is a difference between some of the other films is this one is really him going out on a, on a limb and seeing what he could do. And so, you know, I applaud it for that. I don't know that I'm necessarily going to watch it again anytime soon. Um, it's very slow moving. There are some moments where it feels a little bit like a slog. Like, all right, I, I'm giving it a chance. Like, let's let's see what happens. But when you do get to the end, the payoff and the the sum of it all starts to make sense, and it becomes clear. Like, oh, okay, this is what this film is trying to say. All right, gotcha. So. I, you know, that's been a, a, an interesting run of Kubrick. I mean, even the documentaries I talked about in the previous episode and then these films and going back and watching all the others that I'd already seen. I still got to watch The Shining. I'm going to see that at the Alamo Drafthouse. So I, you know, I could tell you how that's going to go, but just go see the film. If you haven't seen it, see it. So, all right. Uh, you know, that's it. Keeping it short. Just wanted to talk about those. They've been in my mind. I actually watched them a little while ago, but I don't know. I hope you appreciate it. I've tried to cut back on so much of the 
uh, show of this and just keep it to, hey, let's just hang out. Let's talk about these movies. So anyway, go check those out if you want. Uh, they're available in different places. But uh, until then, hey, you know what to do. Go watch something new. Thank you.